You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Open your Bible to Psalm 27 or pull it up on your device because I want you to, to, to look at this psalm uh, together with us. This psalm is largely about fear and anxiety, uh, which seems fitting for the, the culture we live in. I think we would agree that we live in an age of fear um, and anxiety. It's characterized by fear and anxiety. Uh, there's a sociologist named Barry Glasner who wrote a book a few years ago called The Culture of Fear. He says that three out of four Americans would say that they feel more fearful in life than they did 20, 30 years ago. And yet, and this is what he says, he says, and yet most Americans are living in the, in the safest place at the safest time in human history. Meaning, in general, I know it's not across the board, but in general, we've never been more safe, more prone to live a long time, and yet we've never been more fearful. And I think it's because we've had things like 9-11. We've had the 2008 financial crisis. We've had mass shootings. We've had uh, racial tension. We've had po- political polarization. We've had what, like, things like what happened in London yesterday. And, and all those things have, have been constantly broadcast into our soul by the ever-present media and social media. So it sort of heightened the awareness that we live in a dangerous world Uh, and that creates anxiety in us about the world. And so we start to ask ourselves questions like, what if a terrorist blows up my airplane? What if if the stock market crashes? What if someone steals my identity? What if there's a super bug with no cure? What if there's a cyber attack on the electrical grid? What if? We have these deeper personal fears that we struggle with. Like, what if my boss doesn't really like me? What if I fail in whatever it is I'm trying to do? Or what if I miss out? What if I never get married? What if I lose my spouse? What if I get cancer? And some of you are saying, stop asking these questions. It's making me anxious. Fear and anxiety is, uh, these two we know are closely related. Fear, we could say, is an emotional response to a known threat, right? An actual threat, a real threat. Anxiety is more of a, it's an emotional response to a perceived threat, a potential threat. Maybe sometimes it's an unknown threat. We don't don't even know why we're anxious. What they have in common, whether you call it fear or anxiety, is the threat. We live in a world where we are, in some ways, under threat. We are under danger in some way. There are dangerous things that happen in the world that are outside of our control, and that lack of control is scary, right? And so fear is a very real thing. What I love about Psalm 27 is that it takes fear seriously. It doesn't downplay the reality of fear. It doesn't say, don't worry about all those potential scary things in the world. You know what? You'll probably never get killed by a terrorist, You'll probably never be kidnapped. You'll probably never get sued for all your worth. Don't even worry about that. Put on, you know, find a happy place and stop worrying so much. The Bible never, ever says anything like that. And aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that the Bible doesn't put a Christian smiley face on everything and say, you know, the world is just fine like it is? It doesn't do that. 
We need the Bible to be true to life. If we are going to receive it as God's word to us, we actually need it to be true to life. And I think in the Psalms, we find it to be true to life. We're, we're this summer, we're spending some time in the book of Psalms, which is really just a, uh, it's a prayer book. It's a song book for the people of God. And it deals with every type of emotion, every type of circumstance that we might feel. So we might say that the Psalms give us language for life with God in a fallen world. How do we talk to God? How do we talk about God, no matter what we're going through, including fear and anxiety, which this Psalm deals with? Psalm 27 um, basically has two parts to it. You may have noticed this when you heard it read. The first part in verse 1 through 6 is just a declaration of trust. It's a declaration of confidence. It's not a prayer. He's not talking to God. He's talking about God. I trust him in the midst of fear. The second part of the psalm, verses 7 through 14, is a prayer. It's, it's directly talking to God, and it's, he's asking God to deliver him from fear. So it builds on the first half of the psalm. And the big idea of what David is saying in Psalm 27 is that we can face fear with confidence. We, we can face fear with confidence. Isn't that good news? For those of us who live in a culture of fear, maybe experience fear ourselves, we can face fear with confidence. Now, the question is how? Like, what has David learned in his life that he can say that? That I'm in the midst of fearful circumstances and yet I have no fear. What, how, how can he do that? And so, I want to look at that a little bit uh, today, how he can live in fear with such confidence uh, in the face of fear with such confidence. Um, and I want to I pick the psalm apart a little bit. Now look, I kind of hate the idea of dissecting a psalm. Because right? it, it is a song. It's poetry. It's art. I, I hate the idea of pulling it apart like a science project and looking at all its parts and somehow trying to read it scientifically like a how-to manual. Right? That's not how the psalms are supposed to be read. On the other hand, I think there are some insights in this psalm about fear that we need to dig into a little more deeply. Because these insights, I think, will help us, number one, talk to God about our fears, but also preach the gospel to ourselves about our fears. And so I want to look at three insights that we see here. We're not necessarily going to go in the order of the psalm, but three insights in Psalm 27 about fear. All right, here's the first one. Number one, we need to acknowledge the reality of fear. Acknowledge the reality of fear. The reason that fear is a reality is because fearful circumstances are a reality. We live in a dangerous world with things happening that we don't control and we are vulnerable. And David acknowledges that. He doesn't shy away from that. In fact, he shares some of the worst scenarios from his own life in this psalm. David had actual enemies with actual weapons who were actually trying to kill him. Most of us will never experience that. It's not like there's just a guy up at work that he had a hard time getting along with, and that was his enemy. It wasn't like Jim and Dwight on The Office, right? He's my enemy because he put my stapler in jello, right? No, David had real, real enemies. Look at verse 1, Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
Don't you think that bringing up the fact that he has no reason to be afraid points to the fact that he has lots of reasons to be afraid? Like, why is he bringing that up? It's like he's saying, me? Scared? I'm not scared. Are you scared? I'm not scared. It's like, well, David, I hadn't actually thought about it. But now that you bring it up, is something scary going on in your life? Verse 2, when evildoers assail me, that means to attack me violently, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Do you see how David talks about these people? He calls them evildoers. They're bad people. They're adversaries. They're foes. He says, they're trying to eat up my flesh. And what an image he gives us. It's like I'm surrounded by a pack of wild hyenas and they're just laughing at me without pity and they're darting in on me from all directions, nipping at my flesh and their plan is to eat me for dinner. That's their plan. I'm in real danger here. Like serious danger. Verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident Verse 12, skip to verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, meaning people who are against me, for false witnesses have risen against me. And they breathe out violence. In other words, even their words are against me. David knows what it feels like to be opposed, to have people against him. If you read the life of David in, in First and Second Samuel, I just finished reading the story of his life, people against him all the time. King Saul was against him, wanted him dead. Two separate occasions, David was in Saul's house, minding his own business, playing the harp or the lyre or whatever his instrument was, minding his own business, not hurting anyone, and Saul picked up a spear and tried to pin him to the wall with the spear. Listen, this has never happened to me. I cannot relate to this. I've never been up at the office minding my own business, doing who knows what, probably praying for all of you, right? (laughs) Doing something super spiritual. I've never been up at the office minding my own business and someone who's angry with me comes in and tries to pin me to the wall with a spear. It's never happened. I can't relate to that level of someone being against me. Saul was against him. The Philistines were against him, at war with him his whole life. His own son, Absalom, rebelled against him and tried to kill him. Ahithophel, his great friend and counselor, conspired against him. David knew the reality of real fear, real fearful circumstances. Now, and in the midst of this, he says, I'm not afraid. All this is going on, I'm not afraid. I have no fear. Now, Does that mean he never felt fear? I don't think so. In fact, other psalms say he's overwhelmed by fear. In this psalm, he prays for courage. I think it means that he's gotten to a place in his life where fear doesn't rule over him, doesn't dominate him, where he's not defined by his fears, where his feeling of fear doesn't cripple him with anxiety. I think that's what he's saying. See, fear in and of itself is not a bad thing. Fear is just a normal human emotion. It signals to us that something's wrong. We might be in danger. We need to be alert. Fear is a normal emotion. The question is, what do we do with our fear? Where do we turn with our fear? 
Whose resources are we trusting when things start to feel out of control? Where do we turn when we feel afraid? Uh, Robert Kellerman wrote a helpful little booklet on anxiety. I recommend it if, if anxiety is something that you deal with. It's a helpful, uh, I really love some of the things he says in here. And uh, Kellerman makes the point that every, uh, every dysfunctional emotion that we feel is really just a distortion of a good emotion that God gave us uh, when he made us. And so what is anxiety a distortion of? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 This is at creation. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, we know what it means to work the garden, but what does it mean to keep the garden? And and that word keep just means to guard, means to protect, means to watch over. Uh, It means really to keep vigil like an armed guard. And so God has given us this godly emotion of vigilance. So that we could be aware of threats and we could look out for the good of God's creation. We are hardwired by God to protect that which is good, vigilance. But the fall distorts vigilance. The fall and sin twists vigilance and vigilance becomes anxiety. And anxiety, uh, Kellerman calls, hypervigilance. Stuck vigilance. It's like we get stuck in that gear of vigilance and we can't get out of it. And we're constantly scanning the horizon for all the what ifs out there, what might happen. Right? And, and anxiety it, it means that we're in fear all the time of what might happen. And then our fears start to define us. They start to define us. And we don't turn to God in faith, we start to turn to our own resources to control things, to fix things, to make ourselves feel better. Anxiety is just fear without faith. Robert Kellerman, who writes this little booklet, he talks about growing up in the home, his home with an alcoholic father. He says, sometimes my dad would come home and he was like a happy drunk, and he'd want to play catch out in the front yard. Those were good days. Some days, my dad would come home as angry drunk, abusive drunk, and he would just, he would yell at us for even stepping on the front yard. And he says, you know what I learned? I got stuck in high, I learned to be on guard at all times because I never knew what I was going to get from my dad. And he got stuck in hypervigilance, which led to crippling anxiety later in life. It, it shaped the way he dealt with fear in his life. Now listen, growing up with an alcoholic father is fearful. It's scary. It's uncertain. The Bible never denies that, and we should never deny it either, Right? We have to acknowledge that. Kellerman had to acknowledge the fearful circumstances that shaped him before he could ever learn to deal with his fear in a healthy way and what it looked like to turn to God and not to his own resources. That he couldn't deal with his fear on his own. He had to acknowledge that first. Right? Can, fear is a reality. Can we all just acknowledge that? That we live in a world that's out of our control, that people are against us at times, that things, situations might harm us. Can we just acknowledge the reality of fear Don't be like, I'm not scared. I'm not scared of anything. (laughs) Don't pretend that you don't have any fears. Be like David. Take your fears to God. Name them specifically to God. Acknowledge the reality of fear. That's the first step in facing your fears with confidence. But there's a second step, 
We not only need to acknowledge the the reality of fear, but secondly, we need to explore the root of our fears. We need to explore the root of our fears. We need to go a little deeper. Uh, Let's look at what it means to explore the root of our fears. What do our fears tell us about ourselves? Have you ever thought about it? Why do I fear certain things but not other things? You might fear something different than I fear. Look where David locates fear. Look at verse 3. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Isn't that interesting? He could have just said, I shall not fear. But he said, my heart shall not fear. Look at verse 14, the, the last verse in the psalm. This is when he's praying, and he, this last verse, he does a little self-talk. It's like he's preaching the gospel to himself. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. And why didn't he just say, take courage? And he says, let your heart take courage. So David locates fear, or the absence of fear, in the heart. Right? And the, the Hebrew understanding of the heart is it's the deepest part of you. It's the control center for your life. Your heart is the seat of your deepest loves, your deepest desires, your deepest joys. And that's where David says fear is located in your heart. Now, the reason we need to pay attention to our emotions is because our emotions are just mirrors. They're just reflectors of what's going on in our heart, right? What's going on deep down inside of us. They're just indicators of what we really love, what we really desire, what we really value in life. Friday morning, I sat on my back porch. I was drinking a cup of coffee, uh, probably praying for all y'all again. And, uh, um, I watched that video uh, that, that we just watched about Claire coming to Christ. Do you know what? I had heard that full story twice. I met with Claire to talk about baptism, and I was actually sitting across from her in that video. So I was not going to be surprised by anything she said when I watched the video. I found myself, when she was sharing her story, like tears of joy coming to me involuntarily. Why is that? It's because of what I love. I love when Jesus changes someone's life. And so that that emotion of joy that just came out of me was a reflection of what's in my heart, what I love. That's how emotions work. Fear is like that. Fear is an emotion that tells us something about what's going on in our heart. It tells us about what we love. Tim Keller has a a great quote about fear. He has great quotes about everything, doesn't he? Um, But he, he does have a great quote about fear. He says, my fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. Let me say that again. So good. My fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are my greatest joys. How vulnerable are they? When Lauren, my first uh, born daughter, was a little baby, just tiny little baby, uh, so she was our first little baby, we, we, would, uh, we would sometimes go to Dallas to visit my mother-in-law. She, that, she lived in Dallas then. And we, when we would stay at her house uh, at night when we go to bed, Lauren slept downstairs in the guest bedroom, a little pack and play thing. And the rest of us, all of us slept upstairs. That's where all the other bedrooms were. It felt so far away to me. 
from Lauren. And I would lay in bed and I would work these scenarios. I would envision someone coming in the guest room window and taking Lauren and I would never hear it because she was so far away and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And I wouldn't be able to go to sleep because of that. It was an irrational fear. It wasn't going to happen. It was irrational. But you know what that fear did? It revealed something about my heart. That Lauren was, is one of my deepest joys. And one of my deepest joys seems vulnerable to me. That, that signals fear. That triggers fear in my life. One way to think about anxiety is that it's just a threatened treasure. It's a threatened treasure. It's something I treasure. I feel like either I'm going to lose it or I'm never going to get it. Something I value, something I long for, something I treasure seems in danger, in peril. And that makes me fret. That makes me worry. That makes me try to control things. So when I feel fearful and anxious, I need to ask myself, what am I afraid of losing here? Or, on the other side, what am I afraid of never getting? There's something I love or value at stake when I feel fearful. Uh, Tim Keller says that uh, Augustine, the, the great theologian and bishop from, uh, from the 400s, uh, has helpful thoughts about this. Uh, Augustine said that we all have good things in our life, like truly, really good things that God has given us. Things that we love, things that we desire, they are good things. But Augustine said when you make those good things your one thing, your ultimate thing, meaning you say, I got to have this in order to be satisfied, I got to have this in order to have joy and meaning in life, when you make those good things your one thing, then you get, it, you get overwhelmed at the thought of not getting that thing or of losing that good thing. He said, that's anxiety. Augustine said, anxiety is like smoke. When there's smoke, you know there's a fire. And if you trace that, if you follow that smoke back to the fire, you know what's on fire? One of your false gods. (laughs) One of your idols. One of those good things that you've tried to make your one thing, it's on fire. It's collapsing. It's in danger. And that causes you to fear. That's the root of our fear. Now, let me give you some diagnostic questions to help you identify your specific fears. And then maybe you can use these questions to go a little deeper to identify the loves and desires that are at the root of those specific fears. Here's a few questions. What do you find yourself trying to control? Like what situations or people do you find yourself trying to control and why? Like, what's at stake in that situation? In what situations do you notice physical signs of fear and anxiety? You start, your heart's beating faster, you're breathing faster, you feel tense, you feel nervous, you, you know, sweaty palms, whatever. What, what situations make you feel like that? And why? What's at stake in those particular situations? What are you trying to avoid through being busy? through being driven? Like, what is something you need to do or a conversation you need to have that you are putting off and you're doing all your other stuff first? (laughs) Why is that? What's at stake? One last question. What, What fears show up in your dreams? 
What fears show up in your dreams? Because they may be telling you something. Your dreams are just your involuntary thoughts uh, when you're sleeping. You want to know a recurring dream that I have? It's the day of a wedding, and I am officiating the wedding. And I have not prepared at all for the wedding. I've not written the homily. I just remembered that this wedding has happened. It's like happening in like three hours. Uh, in my notes, I still have the first names of the, in there from the last wedding I did. And so I'm afraid I'm going to call this couple by the wrong first name. I have no homily. I have no preparation. Two hours before the wedding, I'm driving to the wedding. I'm trying to get dressed back in the, you know, where the groomsmen are. I can't get my tie right. I'm sweating. I don't have matching socks. It's just, it's not going well. I'm trying to write the homily in my head and people keep talking to me and I'm like, oh, I need to, I need to think here for a second. All of a sudden, you know, I'm sweating. The, the, the music, I hear the music, the processional starting to happen. The families are being seated and the wedding coordinator comes to me and says, it's time. We got to line up. And I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm sweating. My heart's beating faster. And then I wake up and I'm like, thank you, Lord, that that is a dream. What do I fear? Being unprepared. Being unprepared. But what do I love at the root of that? Competence. Or at least the appearance of competence. <laughs> I love competence. There's something in me that thinks if I can have that one thing, which is a good thing, by the way, competence is a good thing. If I can have that, then everything else will be okay for me. But if that's in danger, like if the, if, the, if the congregation, the audience is sitting out there going, I don't know about this guy. I'm not sure this guy should be a pastor. <laughs> that causes fear in me. See how that works? I love being prepared, or I, I, I fear being unprepared, but it's because I love competence. If we're going to face our fears with confidence the way David did. Then number one, we, acknowledge, we need to acknowledge the reality of our fear. Number two, we need to explore deeper the root of our fears, what's going on in our hearts. And then lastly, let me just say this. We see this here. We need to apply the remedy for fear. There is a remedy for fear that we see here and we need to apply it. If our fears are rooted in the vulnerability of the things that we love, then in order to be fearless... I would need to love something that's invulnerable, right? Like, if it makes me anxious to think about the thing, the, the one thing I desire being in trouble or being in danger, then I would need to get a new one thing that cannot be endangered. Check this out, verse four. This is awesome. It's the remedy. Verse four. One thing. <laughs> I love it. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I'll seek after. That I'm, so you're saying, this, you know, there's one thing that, I, God, I want this one thing. I'm going to give myself to this. This is what I really want in life that I'll seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What does David want his one thing to be? The uninterrupted, intimate experience of the presence of God. 
One thing I've asked of you, God, one thing I'm seeking for you is to dwell in your house all the days of my life. David is not saying he wants to live up at the temple. He's not saying I want to physically move my bedroom furniture up to church and live there. No, what he's saying is I want my everyday, every moment, God, uh, everyday, every moment experience of you, God, to be just like how I experience you when I worship you up at the temple. I feel your intimate presence. I feel your nearness because you're there. I know you're there, and I want every day to be like that. God, I want you to be my one thing. See, if my greatest love is God, if the desire of my heart is God, if he's the one thing I want most in life, then I'm safe. I'm safe. I can face the world, fearful circumstances of the world, without fear because my one thing is not vulnerable. God is not vulnerable. My relationship with God can never be endangered or taken away in any way. Anything else I set my heart on is vulnerable, therefore it's subject to fear. God is not vulnerable. That's the remedy to fear. God must be our one thing, our one thing. Now, how do we make God our one thing? Well, he actually tells us right there at the end of verse 4. Look what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, we gaze upon his beauty and we inquire in his temple. We gaze upon his beauty and we inquire in his temple. Now, what does it mean to gaze upon God's beauty? Well, when we gaze upon something, we just sort of, we look longingly at something because we, we desire what, whatever that is. It, it, and whatever it is, whatever we want, it doesn't matter what it is, we we. we Work, we think about that thing all the time. It fills our mind. We turn that thing over in our imagination. We're thinking about whatever it is all our time. That's what it means to gaze. Uh, many years ago when we bought our first house, we had been looking for a house for a long time. And we finally found this little house that was this beautiful little house that it was on a cul-de-sac. We were going to buy it. We wanted to buy it. And you know what? I, without even trying, I memorized the photos on the real estate flyer. I don't even know if they still do real estate flyers, but... Uh, I memorized that, I, and I, I worked, I, I, I knew the floor plan, and I would sit around and think about and imagine the yard and what it was going to be like and where we were going to put stuff. I gazed upon that house in my imagination because I, because I, I thought it was beautiful. I delighted in it. To gaze upon God means to fill your imagination with God. What does that look like? Look at verse 8. He tells us a little bit about what that looks like. Verse 8, God, you have said to me, seek my face. And my heart says to you, God, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. That's gazing upon God, seeking his face. Your face is your, the face is just relational presence, right? It's how you establish a relationship with someone and have a relationship with someone through the face, after church today, you will be in the presence of a few hundred people, but you will only be relationally present with the person you're talking to, face-to-face, or the people you're talking to. They will have your relational attention. They will have your face. That's what it means to seek God, to gaze upon Him, to spend time with Him, to seek His face, to, to spend relational time with Him, to gaze upon Him, just because He's beautiful. And then He says, inquire in His temple. 
there at the end of verse 4. Inquire in his temple. That word inquire just means to seek advice. It means to seek counsel. It means to search out God's will because you want to obey God's will. Look at verse 11. He gives some explanation of what it would look like to inquire of God. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Teach me your way, O Lord. Show me your path. Show me how to walk. I want to know your will. I want to follow your ways. I want to walk in your path. I want it to be obvious to the world by the way that I live that you're my one thing. So what is David saying here? He's saying, love God by gazing upon his beauty and obey God by inquiring of his will. Love God and obey God That's how you make God your one thing. That's how you face fear with confidence. You make God your one thing. You turn away from your fear and you face your father and you seek his will. You turn away from your fear and you face your father, God, and seek his face and seek his will. Did you know that Jesus modeled this perfectly for us in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was arrested? Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. It says, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, and he said, my father. He was seeking the face of God. My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. That's so amazing. You know how scared Jesus was? He said he was overwhelmed. He he was facing incredible fear in that moment. Yet in that moment, he sought the face of the Father and he sought the will of the Father. His relationship with the Father was his one thing. If the one thing you love the most, that you desire the most, is God, then you're pretty much untouchable. You're You're pretty safe. Like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? You might get crucified, and that's what happened. But you know what? Even in that, they couldn't take away his one thing. They couldn't, because the promises of Psalm 27 get fulfilled in Christ. They came true in Christ. Look at Psalm 27, 6. It says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. When Jesus died, he was surrounded by enemies and he was lifted up high, higher than them, on a cross. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he was lifted up in victory over his enemies, sin, Satan, death, any enemies in the universe. He was lifted up above them. Psalm 27, verse 12 and 13, false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence against me. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See, Jesus, we know, was accused by false witnesses. He was condemned to death. He suffered incredible violence, and he died. But in all of that, he entrusted himself to the God who raises the dead because he knew the promise that he would one day look upon the Lord in the land of the living. And that came true. He was risen from the dead. In Jesus' death and in his resurrection, did you know that he secured for us total, eternal, intimate, 
relationship with God. And that's the remedy for all our fears. He secured that for us. You know what the the most frequent command is in the Bible? Do not fear. It's, It's more frequent than any other command. Do not fear. Not do not sin, not be good, not love your neighbor, not even love God. Do not fear. That's what God wants for us, to not fear. And we can actually do that, not because we're so courageous in and of ourselves. We're not. But because God is our light. God is our salvation. God is our deliverer. God has acted on our behalf and secured for us a place in the land of the living. I want to close in prayer um, by, re- by rereading uh, the first six verses of this psalm as our prayer. We've pulled the psalm apart, and now I want to put it back together. And I just want you to listen and let these words, this declaration of confidence, wash over you as we pray together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can worship you freely as our one thing without fear, not because we are fearless in and of ourselves, but because you have provided for us through Jesus the way out of fear. We're grateful for that. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.